You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. All right, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And I'm going to read the first seven verses. The first seven verses. Romans 13 and verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, this evening we're going to begin to look at the subject of the biblical foundation for civil government. What does the Bible teach us about civil government, the duty of civil government, and our responsibility and our duty toward the civil government? Now this subject, and we all know, we all know this subject is particularly important today given the various opinions, divisions, and controversies in the churches concerning the public health orders and restrictions that have been issued by our civil government and by many elders in many churches. As you know, our premier and our regional council has ordered that masks must be worn indoor, in indoor enclosed spaces, that people must stay six feet apart, that public worship services must be restricted in capacity to 50% of the fire code of the meeting place, and so on. In addition, the prime minister and some premiers, like the premier in Quebec, have mandated that Canadians must be injected with an mRNA shot or begin to take mRNA shots in order to earn a living, in order to participate in society, uh, in order to worship God. How is a Christian to respond to such orders? What's our duty? What's our duty? Christian pastors and elders, even in our church, do not agree. We do not agree. Uh, we all believe that Christians should respond based on what the Bible teaches. 
But what that looks like differs, and that's the difficulty. We read from Acts chapter 15 this morning, and you remember that there was a difference of opinion concerning circumcision. And there was a division in the church over that subject. And both sides of that question thought they had the answer. And it took a while and debate uh, to work through that issue, to see what would the scripture teach. Well, as of yet, we really haven't had that debate. Uh, and so the division remains. And so that's been a difficulty. Now, there have been uh, many who have preached on this subject. I've wanted to preach on the subject for a number of months, but have refrained from that. But after seeing another, a number of others who have uh, uh, taught on the subject, I thought, well, might as well. Why don't, why don't we do that? At least then you'll know uh, where I am. And um, in doing that, I'm uh, under, uh, I forget the expression, something I'm not under any, I don't, I'm not, I'm not fooling myself in thinking that everyone's going to be agreeing with me. can't remember the expression that that is. I'm under no, yeah, that might be it. That's the one. Uh, I'm not in self-delusion in thinking that here I'm going to preach it and suddenly everyone's going to agree with me because there have been, uh, I have been in discussion with many uh, on this and explain the position. I'm, I am convinced that I believe my position is right. I believe it's the, the standard position of the reformers. And, uh, and yet others still are not convinced. So we understand that. But that's my goal is to present to you what I believe is the teaching of the scripture. And it is the position of our confession. It's the position of the reformation. And so that's what we're doing. And if any do disagree, I invite you to please come and speak to me about that. Okay, I'm not just saying this is what I think and if you don't like it, then that's it. I'm inviting you please come and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it long and slow. If we get excited and get yelling at each other, we'll ask for forgiveness. We'll calm down again and we'll come back and we'll talk more about it, okay? There have been many political theories uh, that have gone back thousands of years respecting the nature of civil government and power. Uh, and they've been constructions, constructed on various foundations, but they all are rooted in man, in man. Nimrod is the first known king in history, in the history of the world. He founded Babylon <clears throat> and he established his kingdom upon the principle of personal power and the pride of the human heart. And many have followed Nimrod in this atheistic principle that might makes right. And that the law of the land is nothing more than the will of the king. And so we hear Pharaoh responding to God's command, let my people go that they may worship. And what does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh enslaved a people, enslaved God's people, by his own atheistic will and might. We find later Nebuchadnezzar expressing the same atheistic theory of civil government. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power 
as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And God struck Nebuchadnezzar with a curse. As he was speaking these very words, he would be insane and he would live like an ox until he would be humbled and acknowledge that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. No, Nebuchadnezzar, civil government is not yours to do as you please. You are accountable to God. It's one of the most amazing and marvelous things that we read in the, in the scriptures, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him. His counselors came back to him. He was even reestablished on his throne, in his kingdom, as king of Babylon, but under an entirely new constitution. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Nebuchadnezzar would no longer rule by the standard of his own will for his own glory, but according to what is right, and just the right ways of God revealed in God's law. It's an amazing, amazing uh, historical happening. Now sadly, it wouldn't be long uh, when it would just crop up again in Babylon. We see Belshazzar, Darius. We see later Haman. We see Pontius Pilate who would reassert the atheistic view which says, I rule because I have the power. Well, upon what should we base our principles of civil government? Should we base our views of civil government on the traditions of men, as the Medes and the Persians did? Should we base them on the philosophers or the philosophies of men? like the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, or the Roman orator, Cicero? Should we base our view of civil government upon the Erastian philosophy of Bishop John Maxwell? And uh, some of you have received a handout with some very fascinating pictures on there, and you'll find a picture of John Maxwell. He was the chief spokesman for Charles I during the days of the Westminster Assembly. And he wrote a book in 1644 called The Sacred and Royal Prerogative of Christian Kings. You've probably heard his theory stated in this way, the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings. You see, Maxwell argued that the Bible says God made Charles your king. The Bible says you must obey your king. And therefore, you Puritans, put down your swords. Stop resisting Charles. Start obeying Charles. Do what he says, because God has made him your king. Now the Reformation, all the Puritan forefathers, the confessions rejected Maxwell's view. Sadly, in many churches, even Reformed churches, Maxwell's view seems to be reigning. What about the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes? Again, found on your sheet. It's interesting, Thomas Hobbes was the math tutor of Charles I's son, Charles II. 
He was his math tutor. And he wrote a book in 1651 called Leviathan. The Matter, Form, and Power of a Commonwealth, Church and State. And Hobbes argued that every Christian living in a nation has tacitly agreed in a social contra contract to surrender all of his personal rights and freedoms to one man, the king, who was like the biblical Leviathan, the most terrible and powerful creatures in creation. Thomas Hobbes was an atheist. He didn't actually believe in God. He didn't believe in spirit. He thought that God was a material being. And uh, he thought that the nature of man was just uh, one who's constantly at war and fighting with one another. And so what we all have to do is just surrender our right to protect ourselves and try to get what we can from others to one man, the king, Leviathan. And in his social contract, every citizen agrees to the following. I authorize and give up my right of governing myself to this man on the condition that every other citizen do the same. And the fact that we're all living in this land assumes that we've already done that, and so there's no more arguing about it. The king has all the might, and if you resist, he will kill you. Now, it's not surprising that when Charles II regained the throne that Hobbes was very popular to him. What about developing principles of civil government upon the teaching of political philosopher John Locke? John Locke wrote a book in 1660 called An Essay Concerning the True Original Extent and End of the Civil Government. Of civil government. In the first part of his book, John Locke argued that principles of civil government cannot be based on the scriptures. It can't be. It must be based on human reason. And like Thomas Hobbes, Locke believed that the civil magistrate, the king, was in the seat of power by a social contract. The people agreed to give this man the power. However, unlike Hobbes, Locke argued that the civil government was always ruling over the people in a state of perpetual probation. You're on probation, civil government, because we have agreed to put you there. You rule by the consent of we the people. And as soon as you violate our rights, which we define, then it is our duty to remove you, and if we have to, remove you by force and replace you with someone else who will agree to how we want to be governed. Now, this was the philosophy behind the American Revolution. This is the philosophy that is behind the U.S. Constitution. Locke's philosophy. Is that how Christians are to think about civil government? What about basing our principles of civil government on the teaching of Friedrich Nietzsche and his view of the Superman? That's the view that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis developed. What about Karl Marx? What about basing our view of civil government upon the secular humanist philosophy of Ayn Rand, objectivism? Ayn Rand argued that the only virtue that every person should pursue, the only virtue that every person should 
pursue is his own personal happiness. Her most popular book was called The Virtue of Selfishness. And it's a book, or this view, is very popular with libertarian politicians such as Maxine Bernier and the People's Party. Should we develop our principles of civil government upon these philosophies? Any one of them? No. No, we cannot. We must derive our principles from the Bible, from Scripture. Civil government is an institution from God. And so we're to learn about its purpose, its authority, and our duty toward it from the Scriptures. And that's the purpose of this series, uh, is to hopefully unfold some of these principles. Now let me just say again at the outset that the biblical interpretation respecting civil government that I'm going to be presenting is that of John Calvin, Theodore Beza, Guido de Bray, I believe I pronounced that correctly, did I not? Guido? De Bray. De Bra. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies to my Dutch family, actually, really. <laughs> I should know better. He was the author of the Belgic Confession. Zacharias Arsinus, author of the Heidelberg Catechism. John Knox. Uh, those three, by the way, all studied under Calvin. And at one point, they all spent a year together. Imagine that. Guido, you know his last name. Zacharias Ursinus and John Knox. Uh, the Synod of Dort. The Westminster Assembly. Uh, and then countless other uh, Puritans and pastors of the day and theologians. Francis uh, Turretin. Wilhelmus Abrockel, is that pronounced correctly? Yeah, same, same position. In short, it is the majority interpretation throughout the First and Second Reformation. And it will be found in Calvin's Institutes, in his commentaries, in the Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Synod of Dort, Westminster Standards, particularly under the exposition of the moral law. It was most ably explained in the book Lex Rex, written by Samuel Rutherford in 1644. He's the fourth individual that's pictured there on your sheet. And Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. And so his book, Lex Rex, was written as the great justification for the English Civil War. This is really a very important um, thing to remember because uh, as I've listened to several messages from my um, fellow pastors uh, on their understanding of our duty to obey the civil magistrate and that we are to obey virtually no matter what, uh, we have to remember that the Westminster Assembly was written in the context of rebellion. That the Westminster divines were under the sentence of death for meeting together and to be participating in the war against King Charles. The English, Scottish, and Irish Puritans were all engaged in a civil war against King Charles I. 
And it's very important to remember this. The English Civil War between Charles and the Puritan Parliament was not just about um, religious persecution. That was a huge issue for the Scots, of course, that king, the king was telling the, the Scots, here's how you have to run the church, I'm the head of the church. That's what was the final straw for them. But that was not the only reason for this civil war. The main reason from the English Puritan standpoint was that King Charles um, closed Parliament and decided, I'm going to reign alone for some 11 years. I don't need you. And during those 11 years, he um, got involved in excessive taxation. And then he began tampering with land title rights. And so all of these um, matters of civil life, which had been uh, a large part being reformed back in the days of Elizabeth, King Charles was overturning them. And when he finally had to uh, go to war against a rebellion in Ireland and wanted to raise an army to do that, then the parliament said no, and this was the beginning triggering uh, a civil war. But the point is this, is that we have to remember that. Samuel Rutherford is writing the justification for this civil war against Charles I. And he's, he's appealing to the Reformation standard for just war theory in this resistance. Well then, uh, that's the purpose of this series. I just want to briefly then touch on one principle uh, that we can begin to scratch the surface with from Romans chapter 13. If you still have your Bibles open there. I realize that this was very lectionary, lection-like. I uh, apologize for that. We need to get into the scripture here. And I want us to begin this evening by looking at some of the very first principles set forth in Romans 13, verse 1. Now, we should understand that Romans 13 and 1 Peter 5, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 13, and so on, these are not the only places in the Bible that teach us about the civil government. In fact, what Paul writes here in th Romans 13 is not the beginning of a revelation on the civil magistrate and, a, and a, a du our duty toward the civil magistrate. Paul, by inspiration, is writing in harmony with everything that is spoken about civil magistrate in the Old Testament scriptures. There's a whole body of knowledge that is being drawn from that this is consistent with. And so there has been, in my opinion, um, a simplistic approach to this whole question of our relationship to these health orders that are being handed down by just looking, here's what Paul says, and that's it. It's black and white. No, there's more to it than that. But let's look at the first things. Let's look at the first principles. Okay, the first principle here, of course, is that the institution, authority, and power of civil government is from God, is from God. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There's no authority except from God. God is the founder of civil government and of its power. 
And so this is opposed to all of those secular humanistic political theories, such as Hobbes, Locke, Ayn Rand, which say that man is the foundation of civil government. That civil government is the will of the people and the consent of the people in a social contract alone of the people. No, no. God is the author. And this is the chief reason why you and I and every one of us is to be subject to the civil government and to obey the civil government because it comes from God. And this is further proven in verse 5 of chapter 13. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You see, we're not just to obey out of fear of getting punished. You know, the, the, uh, the police, the government, they have all the arms, they have the force, therefore I'm going to obey because I don't want to get uh, hurt. I don't want to receive punishment. No, we don't just obey for that reason. We are to obey from our conscience, from our conscience. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. In other words, you are obeying God in obeying the civil government. This means that disobedience to the civil authority, it ought to convict us of a sense of sin and guilt. If we disobey the civil government, we ought to feel guilty in our conscience that what we are doing is sinning against God. We've done something morally wrong uh, that we deserve punishment from God, not just the civil magistrate, but from God himself. The conviction of guilt because we're disobeying God when we disobey his civil government. Verse 2 says, uh, whoever resists the authority resists what God appoints. And those who resist will incur judgment. So civil government is from God. It's God's government. You know, the Anabaptists in the early Reformation thought that the gospel gave us Christian liberty and that therefore there shouldn't be any civil government whatsoever. No one should be over us to tell us what to do that we only have Christ as our Lord and the Holy Spirit and the law of love is going to tell us what to do and there should be uh, no police and no civil government whatsoever and we don't need to have courts or rulers or anything like that. It's a direct contradiction from, to Scripture. The Jews themselves were prone to this in Paul's day. And uh, Paul would have had uh, familiarity with that point of view. Uh, we are God's people. We don't need to be under the Roman authority. Well, here is Paul writing by inspiration, there is no authority except from God. To resist, resist the civil authority is to resist God because it's a resistance to what God has appointed. It's a sin. It's a sin and it, and it deserves God's punishment. The fact that civil government is instituted by God is seen in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Children, obey your parents. That's the principle. It's in the moral law. 
Obey your parents that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, if you're going to resist the very moral law of the obedience that is required of you to your superiors, whether it be your earthly parents or your civil government, then you're going to be under God's judgment and he might cut you off from the land. Mankind's a social creature and there is an authority structure throughout all of the social interactions, superiors and fears and equals. And the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. And Paul says, this commandment, he says in Ephesians chapter 6, 1, can be expressed this way, children, obey your parents, for this is right. This is what our duty is to the moral law. Obedience is part of honoring parents. So civil government is really an outworking of the moral law, the fifth commandment. Well, look at what Paul says here in Romans 13, verse 4. Romans 13 and verse 4. For he, that is the civil government, civil magistrate, he is God's servant for your good. And then he goes on to say again, for he is the servant of God. In verse 6, it says that the authorities are ministers of God. Now the other thing to note here is that it's not merely that God has set up the office of civil government or the office of civil magistrate. Verse 1 also implies that the particular person who is in the seat of civil power, he's from God too. By the Lord's providence, every particular person who occupies the civil office has been placed there by God. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. We're almost at the end here. If you can just hang with me a couple of minutes longer here. Daniel chapter 2. You can see this. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God removes kings and sets up kings. Every civil ruler has been set up by God. God set up Nebuchadnezzar. God set up Pontius Pilate. God set up Emperor Nero. God set up Justin Trudeau. And God set up Doug Ford. And we are commanded to be subject to them. Because God has set them in the seat of authority. He's adorned them with honor and glory and power. And to resist our prime minister and premier, even though they are men like Trudeau and Ford, is to resist the ones whom God has appointed and set over us. Indeed, one of the reasons why God gives us these men in these seats of power and authority is part of his punishment toward us. Think about that. It's part of his punishment toward us. And to resist the ones whom God has set up over us is to reject reject his rod of corre uh, correction. 
Now, I imagine some of you who have raised children, and maybe some of you are still uh, in the midst of it, depending on where you are in the spanking series season of child rearing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a season that children have to be part of and go through. But there can be times when a child, a disobedient child, resists the spanking. Parents, have you ever experienced that before? Where a child needs a spanking, and when you inform them, you explain calmly and carefully, here's what you did wrong, this is the thing, you, you know you need to have the spanking, yes, yes. And there are many times when uh, children, I have to say, I have to admit, my son Ezra, it was, uh, the, he was wonderful when it came to discipline like this. But uh, there can be times where there's a resistance. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> I won't name names or anything. Here, here's the thing. When there was resistance to the rod, it only made it worse. The rod was not going away. It was still going to be administered. And when God sets up worthless men in places of authority that should be ruled by honorable men and so on, he has put them there as part of a rod of correction for us. This is what he's doing to us. And this is why uh, much of the burden that we uh, experience as Christians under such leaders is the suffering that goes along with that, the, the, the burden of injustice and uh, uh, the burden of foolishness that all goes along with that. But this is the, the first thing that we need to understand is that uh, civil government is of God's institution, uh, both in terms of he created the institution and he actually sets up uh, those who are in that place of, of authority. Now that's just the beginning. There's much that needs to be said. And so we will, Lord willing, uh, continue on next Lord's Day. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.